You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. From the author of the book by the same name, it's The Best Saturdays of Our Lives Podcast with Mark McRae. Later in the show, we'll be getting into ISIS, Joanna Cameron, known for playing among many great characters, her life and influence, as well as that of the character in the show as a whole, on the Saturday morning landscape. Right now, come and play. Everything's A-OK. I'm on my way to where the air is sweet. Can you tell me how to get how to get to Sesame Street? Mark, Mark McRae, everybody. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing great. How are you, Dan? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Uh, being that you were born, raised, grew up, spent most of your life in the Bronx, would you at any point have ever characterized the air in New York City as, quote-unquote, sweet? <laughs> no. Okay. Well, but I still believed in the fantasy of a street as sweet as Sesame Street. It's a peace of mind, everybody. That's where we're going today. We're going to be exploring the sensibilities that went into our lives as reflected through Saturday morning, our social sensibilities, if you will. Mark, why don't you give us an idea of what what exactly all that means? What that means exactly is that in the late 1960s, there was a backlash of too many violent acts happening on Saturday morning television. And a lot of watchdog groups and parent groups were sort of up in arms and the networks were trying to figure out what they were going to do. And so the first rescue sort of came by accident. The Archie show premiered based on the characters from Archie Comics and that show got higher ratings than the superhero series. And so that was the easy solution. Kids wanted to see teenagers and musical bands rather than Superman throwing a punch. Right. But it didn't necessarily solve the issue. It didn't take the heat off the networks because the Archies was not an educational series. These watchdog groups, they wanted a little bit more educational substance on Saturday morning. Speaking of that educational substance, leave it to good old uh, PBS, Public Broadcasting, to jump in and push us ahead light years when it comes (laughs) to not only having an educational component, but a very pro-social value element. Sesame Street, uh, and they started that trend on November 10th, 1969. Yes. So Sesame Street really came to the rescue because it solved a lot of problems. In many ways, Sesame Street, even though the series premiered on PBS, the concept of Sesame Street and the idea that that series became very popular also sort of helped the Saturday morning networks figure out what their next steps could be to appease these watchdog groups that were breathing down their throats to have some type oh. of educational substance on Saturday morning. So Sesame Street kind of acted as as a guidepost then, if you will, for the rest of the industry. Exactly. Mm, and okay. characters such as Superman and Batman, whose television series were canceled over on the networks, those characters rolled over to Sesame Street and became oh. ambassadors for education as opposed to ambassadors for, you know, punching dropping a smackdown <laughs> <laughs> right punching Lex yeah. Luthor or, or the Joker 
around. Right. Uh, so right. it's, it's kind of interesting that all of that happened and took place. And again, very unexpected. And it, it served as a guidepost for what the networks can do. And it also was a relief for the networks because since Sesame Street proved so popular, the networks didn't feel as though, wow, if we put on something educational, the ratings are going to go down terribly. But right. Sesame Street as a series proved that kids really wanted to see something where education is fun. Right. In 1970, In the Know was produced by CBS News and Hanna-Barbera and featured educational wraparounds where the Josie and the Pussycats cast explain how watches are made or what goes on in a glass factory. That was like the first step that the CBS network at least implemented to try to appease the uh, educational watchdogs. Right. Now, it didn't take long, however, though, for the industry to begin borrowing these concepts from Sesame Street until they decided to go into direct competition with Sesame Street in 1971 with the Curiosity Shop. Exactly. So the Curiosity Shop was created as a direct rival to Sesame Street. It was spearheaded by Chuck Jones, who is a industry heavyweight in the business. You don't get bigger than Chuck Jones. Right, exactly. And the series was ordered by Michael Eisner, who would also play a role in um, Disney's afternoon block, if if I'm correct. In Disney's renaissance. I mean, we like to hand up Michael Eisner because he makes it pretty easy for us to do that. Right. But you, you, we, we, Disney wouldn't be as it is today, as we know it today, without his calculating efforts. Exactly. And Michael Eisner also took Scooby-Doo from CBS and put it on ABC when CBS wouldn't renew with brand new episodes, which was a pretty great strategic move for the network and a uh, pretty brilliant idea. Right. The Curiosity Shop, of course, um, had a lot going for it and even had the premiere of the Schoolhouse Rock song, Three is a Magic Number, which is like one of my favorite Schoolhouse Rock songs. I really love that song. However, <laughs> the series didn't do that great. Yeah, which is uh, interesting with Chuck Jones helming it. But, you know, it shows that even the greatest minds in children's uh, entertainment couldn't really compete with those who are geniuses when it comes to children's education. I guess what it was, one of the things that the networks had to figure out was that Curiosity Shop was a good idea, but maybe you can't put a series like that in Saturday morning traffic, which is considered like 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Yeah, and we'll just say it. We've, nobody ever wanted it, you know, aside from in the know and those in the, the wraparounds and whatnot. Right. Uh, you know, there were some, you know, uh, Schoolhouse Rock. We certainly remember that fondly. Mm -hmm. By and large, we want our candy yeah. between 10 and noon on Saturday mornings. Exactly. And in 1972, Fat Albert premieres, but CBS wisely chose to put it in the afternoon after, right. you know, where there's less traffic and less competition. And because right. Fat Albert pretty much stayed in that 12 noon, 1230 time slot, it became a success and built an audience. Smart move. Right. And you mentioned Schoolhouse Rock before. 
I mean, those educational wraparounds were great. And so that's one of the lessons I think the networks actually learned was that you put an educational show or a series that has an educational slant later near the end of the Saturday morning schedule out of traffic to uh, appease the educational watchdog groups you use series like Schoolhouse Rock, The Bod Squad, and Time for Timer from 1974 and 1975, respectfully. Let's go ahead and look at some individual examples, just because a show may not have been sold as or uh, thought of itself as educational, quote unquote. They were still beginning to incorporate pro-social elements into the stories. Uh, One could argue they always have. But it becomes more apparent after Ashford Children's Television, after the whole late 60s shakeup. Uh, Star Trek, the animated series, a show near and dear to mine and Mark's heart, comes to mind immediately. Uh, Yesteryear, which is the animated series episode. If you're a Star Trek fan and you never really messed with the animated series, go watch Yesteryear, if, if anything. That's, that's required viewing. Yeah, that one has kind of an old yeller moment, doesn't it, Mark? Yeah, it does. And it was something that Gene Roddenberry had to fight the network to make sure that the scene stayed in the episode. It was a death of a pet. So it was the first time that you saw a pet be euthanized on Saturday morning television. And the episode was nominated for an Emmy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the benefits of kind of taking it to the deep end with the kids. Right. Aichaya, his pet Salot, mm-hmm. battles some kind of um, venomous space tiger. I think it was called a La Mancha, a La Mancha, maybe. Okay, I, 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 I trust you. <laughs> I trust you. You, you, you. you could tell me it was anything and I would believe you. <laughs> well, it, it, anyway, it was a very a venomous, um, just think of a venomous cheetah or tiger. Yeah, venomous space tiger. Like yeah, it's green. I think it probably had bee bobbers on its head. Yeah, maybe. And it was it was it was <laughs> navy. I mean, I can't remember. But the point being is that the series really elevated Saturday morning and taught a great lesson to kids about losing a pet. Then we roll into the Super Friends. So the Super Friends was a pretty interesting series that premiered in 1973, the year before. Superman and Wonder Woman made guest appearances on The Brady Kids, and those ratings went through the roof. Over on CBS, you had Batman and Robin making a couple of appearances with the Scooby-Doo gang, and those those numbers went through the roof as well. And so someone had the brilliant idea, hey, kids want to see superheroes again. And the backlash was lifted, and the superheroes were back. But were they really back? Well, they had to kind of ease back, if you ask me. <laughs> we then begin the long journey into into 1980s programming. Right. When it comes to our super friends right. and, and violence. But definitely them jumping in on the Bradys uh, was a seminal moment. It was a rebirth and the reaccepting of superheroes. Uh, going back to Superman showing up on Sesame Street. Right. Spider-Man hanging out with the electric company. What's kind of interesting about the Super Friends was that it was sort of a pro-social series. There wasn't really a lot of supervillains on this series. I think I can think of one called The Raven, 
who showed up right. in one of the episodes. The Flash made a guest appearance, and Plastic Man made his first guest appearance. Green Arrow also made his animated uh, debut on the series. But I think a lot of people were hoping that the Super Friends would be like the, their favorite Justice League comic book. I feel like the only way that Hanna-Barbera could sell this series to the network was that the caveat was that the Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, and Robin had to teach pro-social values. Uh, they even added a couple of sidekicks that had no superpowers, Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog, that thoroughly irritated the crap out of me because I'm like, why are these characters there? And you know me, I'm not one that says anything bad about sidekicks, but in this particular case, I don't think the sidekicks made sense. But sometimes you have to do what you need to do to sell a show to the network. And Super Friends did okay ratings-wise. It actually lasted a few seasons before getting canceled. But I think for a lot of people who had not seen a brand new superhero show since 1969, a lot of people were like expecting a lot more violence. And this Super Friends series was not the show that was going to have any type of violence at all. Right. You mentioned Spider-Man being on the electric company, which I think was a really cool move. This past Thursday, the electric company celebrated its 50th anniversary on the air. Oh, and, no kidding. Yeah. And what I find interesting is that Spider-Man shows up on the electric company the same year that Captain Marvel Shazam shows up on CBS, 1974. And right. these kind of coincidences have happened in the DC Marvel Universe a bunch of times. It happened in 1966 when both publishers had animated series on the air for the first time. And then it happened in 1992 with the X-Men animated series and Batman the animated series at the same time on the same network. And I completely forgot about this also happening in 1974. But it's pretty cool because you have these dueling comic book companies that are getting their licensed characters on the air, but their roles have to be completely different on television right. because right. of the environment. But I feel like the $6 million man that premiered the year before sort of opened the door for a Shazam Captain Marvel or a Spider-Man live action to pop up. Right, right. The only difference being the $6 million man was not only allowed to, but expected to punch somebody. <laughs> exactly. And also in 1974, the FCC released the 1974 policy statement. And this was a report that was started in 1971 that was pushed by Action for Children's Television, which reported on the state of affairs of children's television. And the report talked about advertising, and it was basically done as a way to put a magnifying glass on Saturday morning and try to figure out ways to make Saturday morning better by adding an educational element. Right. Well, nothing much came from the report, except that they decided that instead of 12 minutes of advertising per hour on Saturday morning, they dropped it to nine minutes and 30 seconds an hour. That was the right. big deal that came out of the report. And needless to say, Action for Children's Television was very upset that nothing really changed or pushed the needle. Yay, a victory for Saturday morning. You know what's what's interesting is is an, an equilibrium finally descended upon the whole violence and uh, maybe more 
frivolous concepts being explored in network for-profit television and values and and uh, educational concepts being put into these products. PBS eventually created an entire after-school program block that spanned kindergartners all the way through middle schoolers. I mean, heck, uh, Electric Company, if you look at the early mid 2000s incarnation of that was just as worthy as the original and yet was a radically different show. So the the market itself, I've kind of figured it out. And then if you want to talk about social values, look at a lot of, say, Cartoon Network shows from the 2010s onward, like Steven Universe, Adventure Time, where you actually had pro-social values mixed in with some pretty violent stuff. You know? Right, right. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, it just, it just, it makes me think about where we are now. If somebody could have told these moms and these dads that, hey guys, it's going to work itself out. I wish we could just go back in time and be like, leave the Justice League alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Another series that also jumped on the pro-social bandwagon was the U.S. of Archie, which yeah. is, I think, probably the most important series, one of the most important series from the Archie, uh, Filmation Archie franchise. They weren't even kidding around with this show. They, the first episode featured Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad. However, right. you know, after Archie was like the number one series from 1968 through the 1973 season, this series killed the franchise because Filmation and the writers sort of strayed away from the formula. Good music, good jokes, good laughs, good stories. Not that these stories were not good, but kids didn't want to see Archie and his friends doing anything else but having but being fun teenagers. And, and they didn't want to see Ar- Ar- they didn't want to see Archie and the gang sit around and rock the vote. Exactly. And the, and the premise of the show was the Archie gang's ancestors were in critical places in history. You know, the Underground Railroad. They were there when uh, Robert Fulton created the steamboat. They were there when Alexander Graham Bell created the telephone. And yeah. this served as an educational series, but the franchise never recovered from the U.S. of Archie. <laughs> I think what it really establishes is that the Archie gang really is part of a long lineage of uh, Illuminati. (laughs) Oh, is that what it is? Oh, yeah, dude. We go back to Egypt, man. Okay. Jughead and I, Veronica, no. No, we're just the most recent incarnations of uh, the power cult that has ruled this race for the last 10,000 years. Wow. like podcasts then you're gonna hate thunder talk tasteless subject matter mature humor contempt for our co-hosts unapologetic social views edgy music and total irreverence for the nerd junk we love are all reasons why no one no one no one should listen to thunder talk find us on the eso network and all podcasting platforms or don't whatever And welcome to Cigar Nerd Summer. It's hot outside, time to fire up the grill, and of course, fire up some stogies. You know, the beaches are open, and movies are back. So now, we're going to be coming at you with brand new movies, and also, brand new cigars. So, break out your tank tops, fire up the grill, lay out your beach blanket, and make us your summer destination. CigarNerdPodcast.com, also on the ESO Network at ESONetwork.com.
As we mentioned earlier, Shazam, known as Captain Marvel, was a huge hit on CBS in 1974. And so starting in the 1975 season became the Shazam Isis Hour and introduced a new character known as Isis. Yeah. And so Isis had the ability to control the weather, and she was considered a goddess, Isis, from Egyptian times. Right. Isis was a collaboration between the folks at Filmation Studios and a gentleman named Alan DeCoveney, who was running CBS's Saturday Morning, who at one time worked at DC Comics. It was a business decision. Technically, Mary Marvel should have been Captain Marvel's companion, who is Captain Marvel's sister. But Filmation wanted to own their own character, and so they created Isis to be Captain Marvel's superhero fighting companion. And the ratings for this series went through the roof. It was probably one of the best business moves that Filmation and CBS decided to implement during the 1975-76 season. Not only that, but the character of Isis really kind of broke ground when it came to representation of women on Saturday morning. Right. So she beat out Wonder Woman, premiering two months before Wonder Woman, because uh, Linda Carter's Wonder Woman, I don't know if many people remember this, it it started out as a TV movie before it graduated to a series. And Mm -hmm. Isis also predated The Bionic Woman, because that character didn't premiere until 1976 during the preseason. Right. And so you had this first iconic superhero heroine on Saturday morning for the first time. Yeah, big stuff. We've really lost someone in uh, Joanna Cameron. Right. And like Captain Marvel and sort of following uh, Filmation's pro-social strategy, there were lessons that had to be learned while watching ISIS as well, because ISIS dealt with a lot of wayward teenagers. And right, right, right. Yeah, right. You know, you know. I wish ISIS was there for me. Right, exactly. And so, because it was pro-social, ISIS and Captain Marvel didn't necessarily take on supervillains or bad guys or, or criminals. No, they took on worse. They took on the American teenager. <laughs> Something far scarier than exactly. any, any Lex Luthor. Exactly. Right. So the lessons that had to be learned uh, on this series were lessons that viewers were hopefully hearing at home or at church or at the synagogue. Right. Right. And and maybe even school. Not necessarily sure. my school because there was too much going on at my, at, 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 at my elementary school. The one elementary school I went to where you think it would have happened, it didn't. Right. And the second elementary school I went to was like going to reform school. So it just wasn't happening there. Right. But <laughs> rest assured, <laughs> I was getting lessons from Captain Marvel and Shazam on Saturday morning. Oh, yeah. You might have turned out to be just a total jerk without them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but there were some really cool episodes of ISIS I think we should talk about. Yeah, give us give us some examples. All right. Well, the first episode dealt with UFOs. Uh someone is spotting UFOs in the air and 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 to kind of give <laughs> the audience a little bit of background on this, in the nineteen seventies, a lot of television dealt with UFOs. Oh yeah, yeah. Leonard Nimoy had that show. Uh, in search of, in search of, yeah, huh. it had that really rad synthesizer music in the beginning. I find it amusing that it's like, let's talk about some examples of how ISIS was pro-social. And our first example is like, 
UFOs. Right, right. But we find out <laughs> there, Mark. It gets <laughs> there. But we find out later it's all a real a real estate scam cooked up by a crook. And ISIS solves the problem and tells people to be good and not come up with a scam. No, that didn't happen at all. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah no pre- pre- predatory uh, real estate speculating right right is, yeah in california <laughs> i would have never yeah. guessed <laughs> oh yeah right <laughs> i mean that's a real that's a real social value lesson right there right that's exactly an, that's really important kids no no more real estate shenanigans please right but then the very next, uh, well, I don't know if it's the next episode, but Fool's Dare is another episode that's, that's pretty cool because Isis as Andrea Thomas, that was her civilian, civilian identity. She was a school teacher. Her car gets stolen. And I thought that was pretty progressive too. Like the main character's car gets stolen. Oh, dude. Yeah. Well, what does a superhero do when their car gets ripped off? Right. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> right. It's a good thing Isis was a, a pretty nice pro-social superhero because could you imagine stealing Batman's Batmobile or oh no or no or Spider-Man's motorcycle that he doesn't need but yet he has a motorcycle? <laughs> Your life would be over. But I, I thought it was a pretty cool episode, and uh, the sound of silence was another one that's a standout. Andrea, in her civilian identity, when she's not being ISIS, is super smart, and she creates a force field machine. And I thought that was pretty funny because she's a school teacher and she creates a force field machine that she probably could sell to the government for billions. This is the 70s, so maybe millions. Yeah, right. Yeah, she she could have, but instead she uses it to uh, to calm down Henri science fair losers, right? Henri children, right? And <laughs> she remains a school teacher because that's a lot. It pays a lot more than you know making billions off of a a force field patent. <laughs> you, you know what? Maybe, maybe what it is, it could be like you know, superhero. They, it's like, dude, I can crush your skull. I can drive the entire human race before my feet and rule your planet as a god. So, so what does the six, you know, few million dollars from a force field machine really matter? You know, right. thank, thank God they've all had like these Zen conclusions about their places. Mm-hmm. Yes. But one of my favorites, you know, all joking aside, one of my favorites is Lucky and it's the story of a boy and his dog and Isis's efforts to help this young kid deal with losing a pet Mm. and there's a great speech in it and i quote losing something we love is never easy but it's a part of growing up and growing up doesn't just mean getting bigger and older it means learning and understanding about life the cycle of life is all around us if you look you'll see it everywhere in flowers animals people but remember every ending is also a beginning full of hope and promise and new life. Best episode ever. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I was just touched by the episode when I was a kid watching this. I just thought the scene itself was well written. They use sort of like stock footage of the flowers blooming and nature doing its thing. I just thought that the message was just really strong. And Joanna Cameron delivered the goods. Yeah. Another standout episode is called Bigfoot. Again, I have to let everyone know that not only were people obsessed with UFOs in the 70s, they were also obsessed with (laughs) 
Bigfoot. Oh, Sasquatch. Bigfoot. <laughs> that's right. Oh my gosh. So many, uh, so many TV specials. It was almost like every six months it would make national news. Did we finally catch evidence of Bigfoot? Right. Well, no, we did not. Well, supposedly, no. you know, there's that inf- infamous clip of someone showing this giant Bigfoot walking away. It's like for about maybe seven or eight seconds. And yeah. Bigfoot yeah. kind of turns to the camera, kind of giving right. you this look like, what are you looking at? Haven't you seen a Bigfoot before? <laughs> exactly. Very nonchalant. Well, it turns out that Bigfoot is a guy that's a hermit. And he has moved away from society because people think that he's big and ugly. And Uh it was played by an actor named William Ensinger, who was actually seven foot three inches tall. And it's a wonderful, it's it's a wonderful episode. It's really good. Wow. And then um, there's also another great standout episode called Hitchhikers. Hitchhiking was very dangerous in the 70s. Also popular. Popular and dangerous. And dangerous. And there was a serial killer in the 70s that was killing college girls. And I feel like out of all these episodes, as much as I like Lucky as an episode, I feel like the hitchhikers, that is a message that should have been driven to anyone who was thinking about hitchhiking. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you think about it today, the idea of of a young woman hitchhiking is just bonkers. Mm -hmm. It's absurd. Right. But the only reason it is is because there were a a, a lot of PSAs out there. A lot of effort went in on a national level to teach kids not to hitchhike. Uh, Those were around when I was uh, a kid. They would have these PSAs come on, paid for by the ad council. Right. Don't hitchhike. Right. You're going to get stabbed right? 100% of the time. You put your thumb out, you're going to get stabbed. But it, became, it seems pretty obvious today, but you had to learn somehow. Yes. So that was a, a really important episode. Also, uh, Year of the Dragon, which is a second season episode. It's a story about an Asian student who's embarrassed by her father's old-fashioned ways. Pretty interesting because... It definitely highlights a person of color who's trying to fit in, who thinks that everyone in her social circle will not accept her for being who she is as a Asian American. And, you know, she has to learn some hard lessons that she shouldn't be ashamed of her heritage. Right. Which nobody in the 70s was tackling that topic. Yeah. Pretty forward thinking on the part of the show. Exactly. And then last but not least... Now you see it, and now you don't, which is the part two episode, which was served as a backdoor pilot for some of the students that ISIS was teaching. Mm. And Captain Marvel makes a guest appearance on this episode. Okay, so this is backdoor pilot for the uh, the super sleuths, the students? Yes, yes. Okay, but Captain Marvel also shows up to to lend some weight to it all. So they weren't messing around with this episode. Right, exactly. This two-parter. Exactly. And it was a pretty good episode, I think. And again, the story really capitalized on people of color as well, because I feel like in both episodes, uh, people of color were really represented. But for whatever reason, the network didn't pick it up. But right. uh, to be fair, Filmation, they were the king of backdoor pilots. I can do a whole podcast on all of their backdoor pilots. <laughs> and maybe we will one day. <laughs> yeah, bat, bat, bat cast. Right, exactly. So 
Yes, uh, Joanna Cameron passed away, and uh, it was a big loss, and it, it really hurt. Uh, I thought that she was a wonderful, beautiful, and talented actor. She was living her best life, and she was just gone too soon. Now, she was beginning to kind of do interviews again, kind of come back out right, and, and reconnect with her fans. Exactly. You know, because she had left show business a while ago and was doing other things. I think, I believe she became a nurse for a while. And I know that she was working at a, a resort in Hawaii. You know, she just reminded me of, of the type of person that was happy with her life decisions. You know, show business was a part of my life at one time, but now I'm doing other things. And I've left that behind. But Isis was such an iconic character from the 70s. Fans just did not want to let the series go as well as the actor go. So she started doing a lot of interviews again. Well, well some interviews, you know, I know right. there's a couple of podcasts with her and there was someone putting together a book or had put together a book that featured Linda Carter, who played Wonder Woman, as well as Joanna Cameron. Linda Carter, Wonder Woman and Joanna Cameron playing Isis. That was the crossover I always wanted to see. Oh, that would have been you awesome. Know, it, it, it definitely would have been awesome, but no one thought that progressively back then because right. because Isis really technically did belong to Filmation, even though DC did a comic book adaptation of the character and she has sort of popped in and out of the DC comic book world over the years. And even a version of the character shows up on Legends of Tomorrow. Oh, that's cool. Very cool. Yeah. Very but cool. they don't mention her as Isis by name. Right. But one of the characters had the famous Isis amulet that everyone knows, the iconic amulet. So that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So even though they didn't mention that it was Isis, I knew it was Isis. Joanna Cameron, gone too soon. She will be missed. The next evolutionary leap in the Thunderverse has arrived. The Ring of Thunder is a whole week's wrestling in a half hour. What? The Ring of Thunder is a whole week's wrestling in a half hour. What? Every show. What? 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 You come up around here wetting in sexy Thor's yard like he's anything but the hammer swinging, burrito eating, mic blazing, marking out but never tapping out Lord of Thunder, like you would do anything but sit down, open your ears, and take in the Ring of Thunder wherever you find your podcast, like you would find any other podcast in the Thunderverse or the ESO Network. So, hey, Dan, I don't know if I ever mentioned this to you before. The Shazam Isis Hour was the first show that I actually sent a fan letter to. Yeah, I think you mentioned it to me, but uh, mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think you've told our good friends there at home. I was so inspired by Captain Marvel and Shazam. I came up with my own superhero called the Paperboy. And, I, you know, it was me attempting to pitch a story idea to Filmation. And they sent me a very nice letter back saying that they can't accept unsolicited ideas, but sent me a cast photo of Captain Marvel and Michael Gray playing Billy Batson, a signed cast picture. I don't know if they actually signed it or the secretary, Sherry Carter, signed it. Sure, sure. And I still have that picture to this day. And I remember bringing the picture to school with the letter and everything. And I remember one of my friends, Joyce Calhoun, said, oh, Mark, they think you're a little kid. That's why they sent you this letter back. And I could see them thinking I'm a little kid, too, kind of based on the way I used to draw. Right. You know, um, I didn't draw like someone who was 11 or 12 years old. It looked more like I was seven or eight. 
<laughs> but, but that was the whole charm. Maybe if my my pictures had been a little bit more adult, um, I, I might not have gotten anything back at all. You might have gotten a cease and desist letter instead of a really nice <laughs> autograph and a and a and a pleasant letter. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, that character, the paperboy that I created, will now be published book in a month or two. Heard it here first, everybody. Yeah, so it's going to be called The Paperboy Dimensional Adventures. And part of the inspiration for The Paperboy was based on my love for the Shazam Isis Hour. Wow. So I feel like things have come full circle. The Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast is a co-production of the Best Saturdays of Our Lives studios and the Weirdos Workshop. To get a personalized signed copy of the Best Saturdays of Our Lives book, go to thebestsaturdaysofourlives.com. This is Mark McRae signing off. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.